Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio, a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per-pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero-setup, developer-first environment, combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil I. Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today I'm talking to Steve Boom, the VP of Amazon Music, who, can we just say, has a great name for this business. So I love covering the music industry, but over the past 10 years, I have found it's one of the most challenging things to make accessible to a wide audience. See, my theory is that the music industry is like five years ahead of everything else when it comes to being disrupted by tech. Whatever happens to the music industry because of technology eventually happens to everything else. And I mean everything, from digital distribution to remix copyrights to how artists make money. It's a pattern that plays out over and over again. Whatever happens to the music industry eventually happens to everything else. So if you can figure it out and explain it, it kind of feels like you can predict the future. But the music industry is also famously opaque. It runs on Byzantine contracts and weird bits of copyright law that honestly make no sense. So it's really hard to explain what's going on to people, which is maybe why I like trying to do it so much, because it's so challenging. Here's an example. The reason Steve is on the show today is that Amazon is upgrading the music service that Amazon Prime members get as part of their subscription. Here's the news. Starting today, one of the benefits for Amazon Prime members is that you now get access to the entire Amazon Music catalog, about 100 million songs to play in shuffle mode. That's up from only 2 million songs before. They're also removing ads from a large selection of podcasts, including the entire Wondery catalog, if you're a Prime member. You'll recall that Amazon Music owns Wondery. So I wanted to know, what's it like to negotiate with the labels for a service like this to go from 2 million to 100 million songs? Where do podcasts fit into the overall strategy? Amazon and Spotify both spent a lot of money buying podcast studios. Is it paying off? Speaking of Spotify, the day before I talked to Steve, Spotify complained in its quarterly earnings that Apple was unfairly restricting its business, which Spotify complains about a lot. This time, they complained that Apple was preventing Spotify users on iOS from even getting emails with instructions for how to buy an audiobook on the web. So Spotify can't really grow that business. That's on top of the usual complaints from everywhere else about Apple's 30% app store taxes. And well, Amazon sells a lot of digital products, including audiobooks. So I wanted to know how Steve thinks about his relationship with Apple and Apple Music, and if those restrictions are in the way of his ideas. Apparently things go to the top of both companies more often than we know. And of course, I asked him if spatial audio for music is nonsense, because honestly, I think spatial audio for music is pretty much nonsense. It's a fun one. Okay, Steve Boom, VP of Amazon Music. Here we go. Steve Boom, you're the VP of Amazon Music. Welcome to Decoder. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you today. So you have some news. We should start with the news. You're expanding the catalog of songs for Amazon Prime members. Tell us about that. Yeah, so we're updating the benefit that Prime members get in music and audio. Historically, Prime Music has been a catalog of 2 million songs. And the biggest feedback we've gotten over the years is we love this service, comes with Prime, but we really want access to more music. And so as of today, we're announcing that we're expanding the catalog to 100 million songs. So basically, it's a full catalog service, playable in shuffle mode, ad-free. So if you think about it, it's really the, the best music service you can get without having to pay $10 a month or more. We're also adding a, a bunch of podcast benefits into it. And so, for example, we're going to have the largest catalog of top ad-free podcasts. So when we talk to consumers, what do they want? The biggest thing they don't like about podcasts 
is all the ads, <laughs> not surprisingly. And so we focused on building a great catalog of stuff that people like to listen to and making that ad free. Some of it's going to come from Wondery, which is a podcast studio that we own. Um, but a lot of it's going to be from big brands that people are listening to outside of uh, Wondery. So we're excited about that. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. It's exciting news. If you're a Prime member, you're going to get a bunch more free stuff. Yeah. It's very cool. All good. All good. Every piece of that is a structural question about the music industry, about the audio industry, about uh, where audiences are going, what audience Amazon has versus some of your competitors. So I, okay, I want to get into all, all right. of it. All right. Because under the surface of that is a lot of really important structural conversations about the music industry. Sure. But let's start at the start with the decoder question. You are one of the progenitors of Amazon Music. You made this whole thing happen. You've been in this industry for a very long time. How does Amazon Music work? How is it structured? Where did it come from? I, along with a few other people, would I guess could be called the founders of Amazon Music. I joined the company almost 11 years ago. And when I started, Amazon was selling MP3 downloads. And that was the business. And this is back in early 2012. So it's almost hard now, 10 years later, <laughs> to remember that streaming was actually not particularly, pardon the pun, mainstream at the time. And um, we knew we needed to get into streaming. It was clear from our customers that the download market had peaked right, literally the month I arrived at Amazon was the month it peaked globally. So, you know, we, we do what we do at Amazon, wrote a white paper, went to Jeff uh, sometime in 2013. I didn't come from the music industry at that time. So that was, I was brand new to the music industry the day I started at Amazon. So, you know, not surprising, it took a minute or two to kind of figure out the lay of the land. It's a pretty complicated industry with all the licensing specifics and all that. So we came up with the idea back in 2013 is that, you know, streaming is new. What if we did something different than everyone else is doing? Everyone else who were out there, most of those companies don't exist anymore. There's some names like RDO, Mog, and some other companies you might RIP remember. RDO. Yeah. RDO was great. Great product, right? Because <laughs> uh, you're listening, Steve just made a, a clear face. It was a great product. I, no, no issues there. But the music superhighway is littered with yes. startups that tried to do $10 a month services, right? We looked at the data of how people were purchasing music. And you know, we had the benefit, obviously, of being a retailer. Not only do we have digital downloads, but we have the largest at the time and continue to be the largest retailer of physical music in the world, we could see what was happening, which is if you looked at the, called the bottom 85, 88% of customers, just in volume, digitally they were spending about 15 bucks a year, physically maybe 30 bucks a year. So if you think what that means, it means buying a couple CDs physically or mm -hmm. digitally they're buying a few tracks and an album or whatever. And we thought to ourselves, wow, so it's really only the top 10 to 15% of customers who are spending more. And some of them were spending, I mean, a lot more, hundreds yeah. of dollars, even thousands of dollars a year. I am 100% one of those people. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And um, the thing is, we're trying to get people now to spend 120 bucks a year at the time. Again, 2012, 2013, that was actually asking a lot of people. It's just subscriptions were still new generally. Amazon mm -hmm. Prime was quite small. Netflix was quite small. A lot of this other stuff, Spotify barely, I think it just launched in the United States. It's hard to imagine that time, but that's where we were. And our idea was, what if we build a music service for everybody else? Not the people that are willing to part with mm -hmm. 120 bucks a year. So that was the idea behind Prime Music. When it came out, I was like, let's give people a premium music service has a limited catalog of music. A lot of these people don't need the full catalog. Back in 2012, I'd point out that at the time, Pandora had a catalog of about a million songs. That's it. It was a very successful service. So that's what we launched in 2014 in the US, 2015 around the world. So we built that for people that are maybe more casual music listeners. Of course, everyone on my team was not a casual music listener. Right. So we're like, well, we want to build something for ourselves too. And we always knew we'd want to build that premium service because we believed and have been proven right that over time consumers' appetite for spending more money on subscriptions would increase and the mindset would shift from, gosh, that's a lot of money to pay for music to, yeah, this is just an entertainment service I want to have. Yeah. And at 10 bucks a month for all the world's music, it's a ridiculous bargain, let's be honest. I think So I think music is extremely undervalued compared to what you get for your 10 bucks a month. It's incredible, the value. Else. It's an incredible value. There's no doubt. That to me is like one of the foundational questions here, right? Yeah. It's you can pay 12 bucks a month to Netflix, you get the Netflix catalog. You can pay 12 bucks a month to Disney, you get the Disney catalog and maybe some Hulu and whatever's on ESPN+. That's right. Plus. You pay 10 bucks a month to Amazon or Apple or Spotify, you get 
the all whole, the songs in the world. The whole shoot and match, yeah. Does that market feel upside down to you? It doesn't feel like that's how that should work. Well, I think you have to understand maybe some of the, the genesis of that. I think part of it is from no industry was more disrupted by digital than music with piracy, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And one of the things was you had to make it more convenient than stealing music. And if you ended up in a land of Amazon has this catalog, Apple has that catalog, Spotify has that catalog, it's just going to create more piracy because people who like one service <laughs> or the other are going to go download, you know, they're going to find ways to pirate the other music. I also think you have to look at how people listen to music compared to how they consume video, right? Yeah. People want to make playlists. The content is much shorter. And so you engage with it in very, very different ways that I think would make having these islands of catalogs very different. You know, there was a moment when one of the services tried to go big into exclusives. And ultimately, it wasn't very friendly to consumers. And yeah. and the industry didn't like it either, quite frankly. So that ended pretty quickly. So I, I do think it's the right product for consumers. And I, I have yet to meet someone who doesn't think it's awesome that they get access to all the world's music. And it's very reasonably priced. And it has been priced that way for quite a long time. Obviously, there's some changes that you may, you know, that have been yeah. talked about recently. And and that's that's an interesting development. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to get into that because it seems like the music industry, the artists and labels always want more of what is effectively like a fixed amount of money. Right. Because everyone's only paying so much. And the only way you can make more money for the actual musicians is by raising prices. It seems very difficult to make more money in any other way. You can make more money for the companies, for Amazons and Spotify's, by layering other kinds of content like podcasts and audiobooks. Yeah. But actually generating more money for the music industry seems like there's only one lever. Well, in terms of recorded music, right, if you're paying a flat fee per month, the two ways that we can put more money in the hands of musicians is to have more subscribers, so the total amount of money available is bigger, or to have a higher price. Those are the two levers you have. Obviously, I'm not privy to the types of deals that the artists have with the labels and the publishers, and and we leave that to the side as well. But I think that's actually one of the interesting things about Amazon that sets us apart from the other services, which is as we look forward to what is a streaming service going forward, the way I tell my team is like, we've been in streaming service 1.0 world for the last few years, where the primary goal has been distribute a huge catalog of recorded music and help customers find what they want to play next. I think going forward, I'm going to use my terrible pun again, but now that streaming is mainstream and that's how everyone listens to music, you know, it's taken over retail. This is how we both consume music and we discover music, which is you know, it's kind of take displacing radio, displacing retail all at the same time. The way consumers want to engage with artists is different. It's beyond the recorded music. They want to express their fan and they want to get deeper. When I talk to my team about 2.0, it's like we need to think about a streaming service not just being a catalog of recorded music, but being a a host of services that connect artists and fans together. And so you've seen some of the things we're doing there. We've invested heavily, for example, in live streaming, and we're investing heavily in merch. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, there's a fixed pool of money in recorded music, but the pool, it it keeps growing, right? It's fixed per customer. But when you get into areas like merch, there's unlimited amounts that people are willing to spend to connect with their favorite artist and to represent their fandom. And I think, obviously, Amazon's position as a pretty big retailer in the world um, and pretty good at you know e-commerce and logistics and a brand that people really trust to spend money with, I think it sets us up really well for the future. Yeah. I want to come back to that. There's also Twitch, by the way, which is pretty good at live yeah. streaming. So yeah. we'll come back to that. Let's keep going through the decoder questions. How many people are part of Amazon Music right now? Yeah, so my organization comprises Amazon Music, which includes music and podcasting, the, the service Amazon Music, Wondery, our live radio service we call AMP, and then some other smaller, more internal things. All in, it's a few thousand people. And then how is that structured? Are most of your people engineering and tech? Are most of them music industry attorneys? Are most of them artist marketing? Definitely not mostly music industry attorneys. Um, You know, we are a media company fueled by tech, right? So the majority of our employees are tech. But, you know, we have a lot of employees who are not tech. And some of them come from the long time in the music industry. And some of them are, are newer to the music industry. Some come from other parts of Amazon and are massive music fans and then want to work in this part of the company. And, and a lot, we've brought in a number of people from the industry, you know, to bring some of the more, what I, we call the music DNA into the team. This is the classic decoder question. I ask everybody this question. You have run a music service through a time of great change. You've made a lot of decisions. How do you make decisions? How do I make decisions? Uh, you've probably heard this answer before from other Amazon executives. Yes. Yes. 
We have a decision-making framework, and we, we think of them as one-way door decisions or two-way door decisions. One-way doors are ones that once you make it, it's really hard to unwind. It's hard to open that door and walk back through it. Two-way door, it's easy to walk back through. Two-way door decisions, we really encourage people to take them quickly, be willing to fail because it's you can unwind it. One-way door decisions, a good example of a one-way door decision, when we decided to put music into Prime, that was a one-way door. You know, yeah. it, Could we unwind it? Of course we could. It's going to be painful though. So at that point, we take our time and we do a lot of analysis and, you know, we write white papers. We take them up to see, to, at the time, Jeff Bezos was the CEO and, and get him to review it when it's a big investment like that. That's still the framework we use. And that's the common framework at Amazon. So in a two-way, give me an example of a two-way door decision. A two-way door would be launching some new feature. And three months into it, it doesn't have the uptake that we hoped it would have. Do we shut it down? Well, yeah, we can shut it down. If it's not providing enough value to customers, we can do that. That's an easy two-way door decision. Uh, a marketing plan. Should we experiment with marketing in this channel? Well, why don't we go experiment? Like, we can always just stop. So let's not spend a ton of time getting into analysis paralysis. Let's go learn by actually doing it. Music is like a very unique cultural product. The music streaming apps sort of reflect the culture back at you. They're a canvas you don't control in some way. Like, when people go to listen to Taylor Swift, I don't think they care a lot about your presentation of Taylor Swift or Apple's or Spotify's. They just want to get to Taylor Swift. That's a pretty unique challenge in terms of the product you express to customers. What do you think about that split? Do you have people thinking about that every day that, okay, the, the new Taylor Swift record is dropping. It has to look good. Mm -hmm. We have to market this. Is that how you acquire customers or is that how you keep customers happy? Or is it just we have a music player app, all the customer acquisition happens somewhere else? I think the way you think about it is, uh, obviously, whenever we're doing something, we're working closely with the artists. So whatever their artistic vision is for how their new release is going to be represented, we're working closely with them to represent that within our framework. But I think you should think about, like, we need to be culturally relevant. So it's not specifically about acquisition or mm -hmm. retention. It's, it's at the end of the day, you know, you want to use a music service because it feels like it's part of music culture. So we have to make our service feel like it understands and is aware of music culture and is contributing to music culture and reflects music culture. And by doing that, yeah, we think people want to use the service. But the people that are focused on subscriber acquisition are not specifically, you know, oh, the Taylor Swift release is coming out so we can do X, Y, or Z. Because obviously the release is going to be available on all services. Yeah. So it's not really a, a specific tool in that regard. What are the biggest tools for you to go get subscribers? Well, historically, you know, I think if you look at the history of music startups, one of the problems has been is how do you acquire customers? It's expensive and obviously it's 10 bucks a month, but we pay a substantial amount of that revenue back to the rights holders who in turn pay the musicians and the songwriters. So it's not, you know, there's a limited amount you can spend on kind of traditional marketing means. So I think the, the companies that have been successful have figured out ways around that. I think one of the ways we found is we've, managed to build a service that's great for Amazon customers. We focus on Amazon Prime. We focus on Alexa. And these are areas that have brought lots of new customers into the fold. And, and as a result, we've brought lots of new people into music streaming over the years. But we also acquire customers off of Amazon as well. But that's been, you know, if you think about Apple, a lot of it's come through iOS. And yep. Spotify has their free tier. And that's kind of been their distribution channel. I think the ones who have struggled have been those who couldn't find that distribution point to, to build a service on top of. So that's like, to me, the biggest structural question about the music industry. Almost all of the players, apart from Spotify, and Spotify has its own structural support from the music industry, yep. but Amazon, YouTube Music, Apple, all part of massive concerns that can somewhat subsidize the growth of the thing until it's self-sustaining. And there's Spotify, which has major investments from the labels. I think the labels and are- And investors. And investors. Yeah. But I think the labels in particular are pretty keen to make sure Spotify exists. And even title is part of block now. Right. If Amazon Music was independent, would it be self-sustaining? Over time, it would be. There's this myth that, I can't speak for the other bigger tech companies, but there's a myth that, oh, we're just you know using music to sell other stuff. It's simply not the way it works. I mean, I, I run a P&L. In fact, I'm about to go present our annual plan <laughs> to the CEO, and I have to show what's our profitability profile look like and what's the cumulative investment and cumulative return in the business over time. So 
over time, yeah, we would be self-sustaining. But like any business, you you go negative for a while as you invest to build the customer base and build out the product, et cetera. And then over time, you're able to get leverage on your investment. Amazon is actually really famous for that planning process. Yeah. There are entire books about it that people yep. can read. Yep. Uh, actually, I, could, I could probably write a couple by now. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a lot of Decoder is Amazon executives are the best guests to have on Decoder because it maps onto how Amazon operates in many ways. But that planning process is really rigorous. You have to lay it out. You have to write memos. Yep. Are, Amazon famously, speaking of Decoder, has different kinds of decisions it can make. Yes. The music industry is fickle, unpredictable, full of weirdo scandals. How on earth do you make a strategic plan that you can hold on to in the face of whatever is going to happen in the music industry over the next three weeks or six months? Yeah, I don't know that from a planning perspective and working with the major labels and the major publishers, I don't think it's that fickle. Like we have longstanding relationships with them. We consider them partners. We enter into contracts, long-term contracts, mm -hmm. and, and we talk all the time about, you know, how the industry is evolving and what our needs are, what their needs are. So certainly on the artistic side and some of the stuff you see in the press, it, it can seem from afar that maybe – wow, it's, you know, it's, there's a lot of chaos going on in the industry. But I think on the business side of the industry, I don't think it's nearly as chaotic as that. But I don't think that's any different from any other business. We have to take long-term perspective. We make educated judgments about what we think is going to happen in the future. And we're a big enough player in the industry that we can actually play a role in making sure that our educated judgments are going to happen actually does come to pass. That seems different, right? From 2012 when you started to now. Yes, I don't think it has been that stable. I no. don't think I would have gotten that answer even five years ago. I, I think the turning point for us was in probably 2015 when we went to go talk to the major labels about licensing Amazon Music Unlimited. Um, so we talked earlier about Prime Music. That's our service that comes bundled with Prime. And then you can upgrade to the full on-demand catalog, uh, 100 million songs on demand, and that's called Amazon Music Unlimited. We went in early 2016 to go talk to the labels about that. And you could feel the shift happening, A, in the industry overall. I think the fear of digital and the fear of streaming was subsiding and the realization that, whoa, whoa, this is actually where it's going. This is going to replace retail. So we need to embrace it. And then we came to the table. If you look at the timeline, that's right when Echo devices were just sort of starting <laughs> to catch the public imagination a little bit. So in We Walk, and we went to visit all the majors, carrying an extra suitcase full of Echo devices to hand out to them in case they didn't have it. And to their credit, almost all of the executives we brought them to, like, oh, I already got one. Wow. And they were checking it out. And they understood that there is a lot of innovation happening that was going to make digital music get bigger and bigger. And that, I, for, for at least for Amazon, I can't speak for the other guys, that was the turning point in the relationships where we went from having good relationships but challenging to license new things we were asking for stuff they weren't used to giving, and they were still a little bit, I think, like I said, digital destroyed the music industry for a while. So understandably, they were reticent. But that, that was shifting, I think, probably before we went to visit them at an industry level. And then we showed up in early 2016, and the conversations have changed ever since, and they've been very, very positive and collaborative since then. How long are these contracts? Um, they're multi-year contracts. Multi-year five, multi-year ten. No, not five. You, I mean, you can if you just. I, I can't. They're two to three-year deals typically. If you look at, I mean, if you just go read public filings from Spotify, you can figure it out because then you can figure out when they're in renegotiations. And it's pretty common across the industry. It's good I think, that one of your competitors has to make public disclosures yeah. and you don't because you're buried inside of Amazon. Yeah, you know. I mean, it's true for Apple Music as well. Yeah, and. Um, I don't, I think five years, I think, frankly, I think both sides would be reticent to do five-year deals. I think stuff is still changing yeah. rapidly. And I think that would leave you, both of us, exposed to maybe things we don't want to want. We'd end up having to renegotiate two, three years into the deal anyway. It's like, hey, this changed. Yeah, that doesn't make sense anymore or whatever. So one of us or both of us would be coming on various points. So I think the duration of the deals makes sense given the context. It is a rat, it's still 10 years pass into streaming or whatever still rapidly changing and evolving industry. That's the main thing that it strikes me when I talk about the structural nature of the music market. You make the consumer product. Yeah. I, I pay you, I, I still think I pay you not enough money, but I can get all the Well, stuff. I'm happy to take more. You know, we can arrange for that. Well, I, that to me seems, I think that's a hard sell. I, and I think the music industry and the streaming companies have 
they have a, a long way to go to convince people of how much value they're getting in their lives for the amount of money they spend on it versus, I know, every Marvel movie. I've seen them all. I'm still paying Disney. I don't know why, right? Yeah. But I'm going to open my music app 10 times a day. And I think there, there's something imbalanced there. Yeah. But inside of that is a series of competitive content licensing negotiations that occur every two to three years amongst several huge players on both sides, right? There's only so many major labels and they- That's right. It feels like unless someone stops them, they will just consolidate into one major label by the end of it all because they keep doing it. And there's only so many big tech companies. I doubt the tech companies are going to consolidate, but you never know. Yeah, I'm not going to opine on either of those two statements. But, you, but, you, but like every two to three years, there's a pretty competitive renegotiation of how the entire industry should work, what the rates should be, how the payouts work. Is that the business or is the business no, the actually, technology I don't, I don't and the user experience? I don't think that's quite right. I don't think that's yeah. quite right. So every two to three years, it's not you're not restructuring the whole industry. You're you know, but you could. We maybe we want to do you something. Flip the we table want to do something. And say, new. They could say we're done with this and walk away. Yeah, but we're business partners over a long time. It's, yeah. it's just not the way things are going to go down, right? I just can't think of any other business outside of sports streaming where every couple of years they could say, you know what, like we actually don't like any of this. Like there are very few businesses where even the possibility exists that every few years the entire structure of the industry would change. Yeah, I guess theoretically that's right, but they're also public companies now. <laughs> that's true. So they have investors who are making long-term investment decisions based on, you know, the predictability of revenue and the structure of the industry. You know, is there some big new thing that's going to come along? Like there have been these major format shifts and streaming being the latest of them. Is there a next big shift? There might be. I don't think within streaming you're going to see massive structural changes. We're trying to do new things. The other guys are trying to do new things. So you need to get licenses to be able to do that. And then, then we have to figure out the economics of how that works. But I think the core structure of the industry is pretty well set in terms of streaming. But yeah, there could always be something brand new that comes along that displaces or augments streaming or you know, supplemental to it and has a totally different structure. That's more likely what's going to happen. And streaming is always going to be, I mean, it's, it's driving almost all the revenue in the industry these days, except for the resurgence of vinyl, which is fun to watch. Um, also good for Amazon. Great for Amazon. You know, it's ironic for me because when I joined Amazon 10 years ago, it was, you know, vinyl was kind of like, it was a hipster thing, right? And people are buying turntables at Urban Outfitters, which is just weird. I remember saying, well, when I grew up, vinyl was how you listened to music. I didn't, yeah. I didn't have a choice. It wasn't cool. It was The music was cool, not the format. But it's great to see vinyl growing like it is. And, and I saw Taylor Swift's numbers. I mean, she, I think she sold a half a million or more vinyl copies in, in the first week. It's incredible. We bought three. It's like one for me and one for the niece and one for the nephew. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, it's good that you, amazing that she could actually uh, manufacture that many. That's been the biggest problem in vinyl. Yeah. There's just not enough manufacturing capacity. But I think what's there have been these big shifts. Streaming is really driving almost all the revenue and certainly all the revenue growth in the industry. So is there going to be something new that comes on top of that? That seems like the more likely outcome to me. And you think that's something new is merch or concert live streaming? Well, that's or, new for us yeah. and new for the artists. That's a different part of the industry than the recorded music industry. You know, merch is not part of the recorded music industry. So um, we're working directly with artists on that. We're working directly with artists on the live streaming. You know, we work with the labels to some extent, but ultimately they're less involved in that stuff than on the recorded music where they own the copyrights. One of the things you did roll out in recorded music was higher quality tiers. Yep. Right. You've, I think it's HD. Yep. I think you also have surround audio, like 360 yeah. audio. Yep. Does that stuff play? Like I am a nerd for that stuff. I'll take the lossless streaming all yeah. day, all night. But my experience in this industry and with our audience is that convenience trumps quality every time. And so asking people to pay for higher quality is, is always just a slog. Yeah. So we rolled out Amazon Music HD back in, like, I think it was 2019, right? We're almost like right before the pandemic, if I recall. And our goal at the time was to take higher quality audio more mainstream because at the time it was, you know, you pay $9.99 for a base plan, and then other services are charging another $10 to so get to $19.99 or $19.98 to have the lossless audio. We all thought that was way too, it's way too niche, way too expensive. And we work with the labels like, we want to make this 
more mainstream, we want to do it. And, you know, we want a wholesale price to support us to be able to go out at 15, like a $5 add-on, right? So we launched that. Everything in the catalog is CD quality or better. So we, we called it HD or Ultra HD. Ultra HD is now, you know, 192 uh, and all that kind of stuff. So before things changed, I think it was over a year and a half ago, Amazon Music HD was bigger than all the other high fidelity services combined. Yeah. That being said, it was still relatively small in, in the industry, but we think it was a really important driver. I think you're right that convenience has trumped quality at almost at every turn in the evolution of digital music, but it's already so darn convenient now. It's time for quality. It, we, our view <laughs> is it was time for quality to cut. You did, it was a false trade-off at some yeah. point. It was the right trade-off back when storage was limited, bandwidth was limited, all those things that made, you know, well, I want to have smaller files, makes more sense. We're like all of those things that drove us to actually dumb down the product that was recorded in the studio to give to consumers. Like what are the, you, you talk about weird things in the industry. That's weird. Yeah. The artist records it at this quality and we're like, yeah, that's not what we're going to give you. We're going to give you something worse. Like why would you do that? Well, technical constraints. We're past that point. Once you get to 5G, almost unlimited capacity on your phone, storage on your PC is, you know, it used to be how much it was for a, for a gigabyte. Now a terabyte costs you a buck or something like that, right? It's, so we felt like all the technical constraints were gone. We don't have to trade between convenience and quality anymore. I do think a lot of people care. I think a growing number of people care. I think vinyl is actually evidence of that to some extent. A lot of people you talk about vinyl, they like the sound quality. For other people, it's actually considered more like merch, right? Mm -hmm. It's the way they have a physical connection with their artist. And then we added spatial audio. So Dolby Atmos, Sony 360 reality audio. And I think that content, interestingly, I think what we're finding is people are gravitating towards that even more than the higher quality bit rates. Yeah. Because you can really hear the difference. And we've done it. So you don't you just need a regular, use our mobile app. You don't need special headphones or anything. Um, Do you think it sounds good? I think a good mix sounds unbelievable. <laughs> That's a very careful answer. Well, there are some mixes that are less good than others. <laughs> I could say the same about studio albums. That's true. I just, uh, every some, time. Some studio mixes aren't awesome. But if you hear a really good mix in spatial, like in Dolby Atmos, it's mind-blowing, actually. What's the best mix you've heard in spatial? The first song you always hear is Rocket Man. And it's amazing. Yeah. So that was the one where I was like, oh my gosh, uh, we got to do this. I mean, I literally sat in a, in a room like this. The Amazon devices team invited me down. I live in the Bay Area. They invited me down to the office down in Sunnyvale. And they played it. And just they just sat there watching my face, just like, wonder what, <laughs> what the music guy's going to think. And my jaw was practically had to be picked up off the floor. It was amazing. So that was the first one. I, I always like to use Another One Bites the Dust by okay. Queen. If you listen to that, it's just, it's, it's I, So I listened to both of those. Yeah. And you don't like them? Uh, the idea that Brian May is sneaking up behind me to play a guitar solo is just like not <laughs> that compelling. And I, the the thing that I wonder, the reason I'm asking this line of questions is you're right. The artists are in the studio. They make a thing. Yeah. And then it's strange that the default price gets you a worse version of the thing and you can pay to get closer to the artist intent. And then because just because you can hear it, because the music industry can put some chrome fins on another one bites the dust and make it swirl all around you. Yeah. You can pay yet more money. Yeah, but it's not that different from what happened in video. Do you remember remember a time when we started to all get HD TVs? But that was a perceptible quality. And you paid 10 bucks you used to pay $10 extra to Comcast or whoever your provider was to get HD television. And then it got ultimately bundled in. Sure. And that's really what's happened now in music, right? We came out at $5 a month. And within two years later, it's now part of the base service. You don't have to upgrade to Amazon Music HD to get all the HD quality. It comes as part of the base service now. So I think it's very analogous to what happened in video. But this is the, going back to the two or three year contract negotiation. Yeah. Right. In two or three years, you're going to go to labels and you're going to say, right now, you're charging us more money to stream lossless. You're charging us more money to stream in spatial. We want to bundle that into the base price and take that revenue stream away. It's a gate. Right, They have a revenue gate around higher quality files or differently mastered files or differently mixed files. And over time, you're saying those gates will go away and it'll just become bundled into the default. Yeah. And that is, is that the conversation every two to three years? 
Well, some of those conversations happen in the interim period when, yeah. when market conditions change. Neither they nor we have to wait for the contract to be over to, to, to say, you know what, this term doesn't work anymore because something has changed. So it can wait two years or but three years. But yeah, that's the kind of thing to your question directly. Yeah, that is the type of thing that we would talk about in a renewal conversation. And are those conversations competitive with, okay, Apple has rolled out lossless, but Spotify hasn't. What are the terms my competitors are getting? Well, obviously, I don't know what the, their terms are. You must be very interested in their terms. Of course I'm interested. I'm sure they're interested in my terms. That doesn't mean I know them. You know? Say what your terms are. We'll uh, see if I can get an Apple. I'll get Eddie Q on next. Mm, let me think about that for a second. Um, yeah. So, of course, the labels, you know, they're not going to tell us what the terms are with other providers, nor do we tell one label what the terms are with the other label. You know, these are, we're all big companies, the majors, the music streaming services, we're all big companies and these are arm's length negotiations and we all have different asks. Yeah. Our services aren't the same. The core value proposition of all the world's music for a really good price is the same, but there's lots of nuances in what we do that require licenses and marketing things. And that ends up in puts and takes that are different from service to service. So it's almost hard to compare other than like the or am I getting all the music? Like, uh, you know, beyond that, it's actually gets harder and harder to compare the deals. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, I have to ask about Alexa. Stick around. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Debate time. Who gets more out of Wix Studio? Designers or devs? First off, if you don't know about Wix Studio, it's a web platform offering the flexibility agencies and enterprises need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Now, back to the debate. Designers, you can create fully responsive websites, starting with a blank canvas or choose a template for any layout and tweak per pixel with your CSS. If no code's your thing, or you just like to move fast, there's also a ton of smart features, like native no-code animations and responsive AI that adjusts every breakpoint. Devs, Wix Studio offers a powerful suite of homegrown web APIs and REST APIs. Quickly integrate, extend, and write custom scripts in a VS code-based IDE alongside an AI code assistant. Designers or developers, search Wix Studio and find out for yourself. Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health, and whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Hims is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. Hims.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're back. So you mentioned the Echo several times. The Echo is more than a speaker. It has Alexa. I've talked to Dave Limp on the show. He runs Alexa, among other things. He confirmed the obvious thing, that asking Alexa to play music is very popular. Yeah. Is that something you take to the labels? Hey, we want Alexa devices to work out of the box. We need some version of Amazon Music that operates, but you're going to get all these additional streams and we'll guarantee you some amount of activity because that's what people do with these devices. Almost everything you said is exactly what we did, actually. <laughs> so back in 2016. That's the first one I've gotten right in hey, this entire hey, conversation. Well, first time for everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, like in 2016, I, I mentioned that's when our relationships really changed. We went to the labels with an idea. It wasn't just that we want to launch Amazon Music Unlimited, which, you know, you use on your phone, you use on an Echo, you use on your television, you use on your laptop, wherever you want to use it. 
We saw an opportunity to do something different. And the different that we saw was, if you think about a lot of services had tried to create what we call a mid-tier service, meaning less than 10 bucks a month. I won't name all the people that tried to do it, but each and every one of them failed. And they failed because they got over-licensed, or that's the right word, they over-regulated in their licenses as to what they could do because the fear was always, if you make it good enough, people will say, well, that's good enough, I'll pay five bucks a month instead of 10. So you'd end up not growing the market, but actually shrinking the market. So it was like, oh, you could only have three downloads a month or you know, these types of restrictions, which aren't very consumer-friendly, impossible to explain to people. Yeah. They all failed. We actually went with the idea, like, we have a great idea. This device is begging for a full catalog of music, right? I used to joke, when we launched the Echo device, we had Prime Music only at the time, which by design was a limited catalog. It had 2 million songs back in the day. But there's no screen on an Echo. So if you have a phone or any kind of visual interface, we can really guide you to the music, and we get to decide how you browse for music, how you search for music, because we're controlling the structure of the, of the interface. With a no screen on an Echo device, we don't control anything. The customer just walks up and says what he or she feels like saying. And what we found, obviously, is that people wanted the full catalog. And so the way I, I explained it to Jeff was like, imagine if you went to Alexa and said, hey, Alexa, what's the weather in San Francisco? And Alexa's response was, I'm sorry, but San Francisco weather is not included in your Prime membership, but here's the weather in Los Angeles. Not a great customer experience. And that's what actually Prime Music, the experience was. Because you might ask for the latest song by Drake, and that wasn't in our catalog for whatever reason, and she would say, it's not available, et cetera. So we went to the label and said, we need a full catalog, but we think the Echo device is going to expand the market. You can look at all the data of who's buying them, and we think it's going to expand the market. And therefore, what we want to do is we want a full catalog service that works only on this device. So it's tied to the device, almost like an, an EPG would be tied to your television. But we don't want to launch it at a reduced price. And that's a $4.99 service. So it's the first mid-tier service where it's a fully functioning product. There's nothing for the customer to try to figure out. I can only ask six times, seven, none of that. You can do whatever you want, but it's only 5 bucks a month. The moment you try to use it on your phone or on your television or wherever else, you're going to be prompted, oh, well, that requires an upgrade to the full plan. So we call this the single device plan. It's been immensely successful. And one of the pitches to the labels was, if that customer never tries to use it on their phone, never gets presented with an upgrade message, this is found money for you. Yeah. This is a new customer in the ecosystem. And by the way, it's priced at a level, if you look back at the peak of the CD market, you know, 50% of U.S. consumers were spending money on music. The other 50% were listening but not buying anything. The average spend of those who bought music was 50 bucks a year. So when we came to the labels with this idea of this perfectly designed mid-tier service at 60 bucks a year, it was actually more revenue than they were making off the average CD buyer back in the day. So it's been hugely successful. A lot of people come in on an Echo, they buy that plan, then a lot of them will upgrade either to the individual plan or the family plan. Um, so in that case, it acts as a nice, low-cost on-ramp into streaming. And then for those, there are other people who like, no, that's all I want. I just want it on this <laughs> device. I've got my smart speaker. Yeah. I don't want to listen to it on my phone. Maybe I pay for a separate service on my phone. Because music has historically been more, internally we say it's more of an or business versus an and business, like video, meaning video you'll subscribe to Prime and Netflix and yeah. HBO. And in music, you tend, because the proposition is all the world's music, it tends to be more of an or. I subscribe to Amazon or Apple or Spotify or et cetera. We have enough data to support our belief that there's a certain number of customers who are subscribing to the, the single device plan who may be subscribing to a competitive service on their phone, but we've spent so much energy on building a great voice interface for music that they prefer our service on an Echo device and they're willing to pay. So now that's extra revenue for the industry. When you go and say, okay, we're going to expand the service that's included with the Prime to be the full catalog, to be ad-free, yep. to have shuffle, yep. is that based on the same thing? Hey, we've got Alexa that's going to happen for you. Making that better is better, is it? How does that work? That wasn't so much about Alexa. That's really yeah. just about, you know, Prime is this massive membership base around the world, and it's been a great revenue and growth engine for Amazon Music and, and our partners and when we launched it in 2014, streaming was new. People's expectations were different. Now, streaming is no longer new, and people's expectations are they should get access to everything. We live in that kind of a world where I have access to everything whenever I want it. Uh, so it was just going to the labels and explaining, like, this is our 
our vision for the product going forward. We want you guys to support it. And we talk through why we're doing it and explain. We give them data and we reaffirm our commitment that ultimately we ultimately want people in the premium service that we, we look at Prime Music as ultimately it's the best service you can get without having to spend an extra $10 a month out in the marketplace. But ultimately it has limited functionality compared to a full on-demand service. And we want people to upgrade at the end of the day. I pay Amazon however much money for Prime. Are more of those dollars being allocated to the music industry when I use the new service that's bundled with Prime? Yeah, I can't really talk about the details of those deals. Can you like nod one way or the other? I, well, it's an audio service, so I'll just move my head in circles. <laughs> <laughs> we have to take one more break, but when we get back, Steve and I talk about podcasts. We'll be right back. We're back. Let's talk about podcasts just for the last 10 minutes here. Yeah. You're also bundling in some Wondery podcasts. You're taking the ads out. We're on a podcast. I'm deeply familiar with how the podcast business I'm works. I'm sure you are. I'm sure you are. Taking the ads out, that's a big deal, right? Now you're saying, okay, we're going to get fixed revenue out of this catalog of audio that you own as opposed to the variable revenue of, okay, there's an audience here. We're going to bring in demand for it. We're going to set rates on this catalog against these audiences because it's Amazon Music, because you're streaming, you can actually target the customer in a way that other podcast players that run on RSS cannot. Mm -hmm. Why take that revenue away? Well, to be clear, in the case of Wondery, we're still distributing all of Wondery's podcasts yeah. across other podcast listening apps. And those are ad-supported. There's also a subscription option called Wondery Plus uh, that you can subscribe directly or, or through Apple. And that's, the I think, according to Apple, is the biggest podcast subscription in the marketplace. You know, for us, it was, you know, Prime members can get podcasts anywhere they want. They can get them on Amazon. They can get them in a, in a multitude of places. We see growth in the podcasting market really happening in terms of number of listeners coming on board. You know, it, it's moved away from being a niche thing, kind of geeky thing a few years ago to being really right in the middle of the mainstream. But there's still a lot of growth left. And as simple as when we looked at and talked to customers about, like, what is it that you want? That was the number one thing. Yeah. Can you, at least for some portion of the podcast, can you make it ad-free? And, you know, there are different types of podcasts. I think in some cases, ads are more disruptive than others. When you're hearing a narrative story and then an ad comes in right in the middle of the story, it's quite disruptive. I think if it's a more talk radio style, you know, mm -hmm. type of podcast, I think ads are honestly not as disruptive. So I think you can take a little more nuanced approach to but, where... But how does that money work? I mean, that's like the piece of the puzzle that I'm, I'm trying to sort out. So you have an episode of podcast, you distribute it, all the places. Yeah. I think at best, Amazon only windows exclusives for a week, right? Like, I think some Wondery podcasts end up in your service. For yeah, for a short period. One. Yeah, that's right. So you distribute it everywhere. We call that early access. Yeah. You distribute it everywhere. You put the ads in. The ads are mostly dynamically targeted on most of the platforms now. So you can target audiences against whatever. It's Christmas. We're going to do holidays. Well, actually, most, most ads are still being sold show-based. Not audience-based okay. podcasting. That's so different than, than our experience, anyhow. But yeah, well, I can, I can speak from our like yeah. I can speak from the Wonder experience. We're still like the the higher CPMs are still right now in selling by show versus selling by audience. But it is changing. I agree with you there. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely changing. So you have just I'm you've done the math and saying okay, we can take out the for this segment of listens, we can take the ads out and allocate some dollars from the Prime bundle. That's right, and we'll make more. Yep. Who does that math? Do you have like an Excel? Oh. Do you have an Excel department? Is that you? Like, uh, who makes have, that decision? Uh, yeah, we don't have an Excel department per se, but we, uh, <laughs> Amazon does have a team of economists who look at Prime and the subscription revenue that Prime members pay, uh, either annual or monthly, and allocate that revenue out to the various benefits that come with Prime. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the top two benefits are your sh free shipping and Prime Video are, are easily the top two, and then music is the third but it's quite a distant third yeah. uh, in terms of in terms of the revenue allocated. When you decided to do the Wondery deal and the other podcast deals you've done, was that the same motivations that Spotify has been very public about? Like, you give us a dollar, we spend 70 cents with the labels, we've got to find something else to increase our margins? Yeah, I don't know exactly their well, motivation. Well, they've been very public. If that's their motivation, yeah. no. The answer is no. Okay. I think we, with Wondery, we saw an opportunity one difference that we like is that we can own IP, which we don't in music. We're not the IP owner. The labels and the publishers are. So that's great. 
But we actually, we looked at it more, and, and you can see from our strategy that we continue to distribute all the Wondery podcasts broadly, including on Spotify, on Apple, et cetera. We saw an opportunity to build a big advertising business. And we thought then, and we continue to think they're absolutely the best in the business, both from a content production perspective, but also from an ads perspective. And you can see the deals that we've done since Wondery became part of Amazon, doing partnerships with Smartless, My Favorite Murder, Morbid, et cetera, to build out really, um, they're now the number two publisher from an ad network perspective in the United States, up from number three. And you know, the goal is to become number one over time. We see an opportunity to build a big ads business. And um, that ads business is going to be at that scale not by having th- everything exclusive on Amazon, but actually having things continue to be distributed broadly. So do you think the podcast bring people into Amazon Music or is it Wondery is Some its of own them, business that's going to do its own thing? It's a little of both, right? So we uh, Wondery operates independently, but it reports to me. And Jen Sargent, who's the CEO, is part of my leadership team. And they work closely on some of the podcast things that are happening inside of Amazon Music, but at the same time, they're running as an independent company. The same thing that happened to sort of music streaming is happening in podcasts, right? You Very hard to find an independent music streaming company. They're all tied to some bigger thing. There's a massive wave of consolidation and acquisition amongst podcast studios. Spotify bought Gimlet. The New York Times bought Serial. Odyssey bought Cadence 13. Our company, Vox, bought Criminal and Cafe. Amazon bought Wondery. Is that just the nature of the industry that you need to be part of a bundle or you need a larger suite of brands or you need to be tied to distribution in some way? Or do you think an independent podcast studio can survive? I think absolutely independent podcast studios can survive. I think no one has to be acquired. I think between Wondery and us, we saw a unique synergy between the two of us. But there are lots of independent podcast studios that, that I just described that are working with us, but as partners, not through acquisition that we can actually help them monetize better than they were monetizing on their own and actually help them to stay independent. I don't think you're going to see in podcasting a huge continued consolidation of all these studios. Do you think that market has hit a peak? I don't know. Because it has been a pretty intense wave up until now. Uh, it seems like it's slowed down already to me. I, I mean, we bought Wondery 18 months ago. We haven't bought anybody else. When we did the deal with Smartless, it was misrepresented in the press as us having acquired Smartless, which was not the case at all. It's, it's a it's a partnership where we exclusively represent their ads and some other smaller thing like early access on mm-hmm. episodes for a week. But at the end of the day, we didn't acquire Smartless. Those guys are building an incredible media company on their own, and we're helping them monetize it and make it more valuable. But they're staying independent. One of the things that strikes me about all this is theoretically what Amazon brings to the table is massive distribution and then the entire Amazon suite of things. You're a trusted Mm -hmm. company, you hold a lot of credit cards, you can drive purchases for all this other stuff. It strikes me that the music industry, as we've had this conversation, the music industry is just full of gatekeepers left and right in a way that the tech industry kind of isn't. But there's two gigantic gatekeepers at the intersection of music and tech, right? There's Apple and there's Google. Spotify is in this endless vitriolic fight with Apple. They just published a bunch of stuff yesterday about how Apple won't let them sell audiobooks in the right way. Amazon is the poster child for you can't buy a book or a digital item on an iOS device without jumping through some series of complicated hoops. Not a hundred percent the case, but yeah, by and large. You can subscribe to Amazon Music Unlimited and you can subscribe to Audible through Apple. But but you, you pay them the cut. Yes, we do. Yeah. But you can't grow your business in the face of a 30% cut on every other thing you might sell. How does that relationship work for you with Apple and Google? Uh, I don't think we have enough time on this podcast. There's a reason I gave you two minutes at the end. You got to do it. <laughs> I waited until the end. You get, but you have to answer the question. How is, how is that relationship? Does that feel like a gatekeeper to you? Um, well, they're different relationships. So we have a different relationship with each of them. And I think you know Amazon and Apple, Amazon and Google, we have much more wide-ranging relationship than perhaps some other companies, just given our scale, right? So we sell devices, uh, we retail devices on Amazon. Apple Music's a partner on Echo, Google, we work really closely with across the board. So the way Amazon tends to work is we generally allow each of the individual businesses to make a decision about whether they want to, like it was my decision to put Amazon Music Unlimited in Apple, in the App Store, where I would agree to pay a share. But it's not, by the way, you know, the, the way it works with subscriptions is different than yeah. with transactions, the second year right? Is cheaper. Correct. Yeah. That was my decision. And, and other 
business owners can make their own decisions, but obviously then there's a higher level relationship discussion that happens from time to time. Um, I'd say they're complicated relationships. Yeah. On the whole positive, but complicated. Do you perceive the additional leverage of the higher level business conversation when you're making your decisions? Do you say, okay, look, we really need to roll out, I don't know, whatever it would be, more digital merch in the store. We really want to sell more things from artists on Amazon Music. Some of those things are wallpapers. They're digital items. Yeah, we haven't done that at this but point. I'm, just, yes. I'm imagining yep. something where Apple would take a, a tax. We want to sell an ebook from Taylor Swift next to her page in the store. That's a new revenue line for us. Apple wants a cut of that. Mm-hmm. Is that, okay, I'm going to try to make that deal, or is it I'm going to call Andy, and he's going to say, I'm yanking Prime Video <laughs> off the Apple TV unless you make this deal? Uh, I really can't go into that. I, I just would say, obviously, it's the, the, the example you gave of, of wallpapers is an easier one because yeah. it's a digital good. There's no cost of goods sold. You know, it depends if, if I have to pay 70% back to the labels and publishers or whatever, that gets problematic. But if it's something totally new and you're happy that, to that Taylor case. has the rights to and she's, you know, whatever, then it's a, it's a lot easier conversation. Spotify has framed this stuff as an existential threat to their business, right? We can't expand our market if we have to pay a cut for everything we invent. Do you feel it as existential? Do you feel it like it's in your way? It's definitely not existential for us, no. Would I like it to be somewhat different? Yeah, probably, but at the end of the day, it's not existential for us. Audible has a really big audiobooks business that has thrived in a long-standing partnership with Apple, right? And so they're the biggest audiobooks player out there, and they've been working with Apple for 15-plus years, 20-plus years, and so they've managed to build a big business while working with Apple. So I can't really speak to Spotify's position and, and what they want or need. But Amazon has managed to build big businesses. Even when Audible wasn't as big as they are today, they managed to build a big business working with Apple. Is this, you just need this scale to operate and play in the game? I mean, it feels like the theme of the conversation. Spotify's got scale. Not as much (laughs) as Amazon. In music, they have a lot of scale. But Amazon has, Amazon retails the iPhone. Like there's a different kind of scale that is happening here. Is it that you need to be all encompassing in this way to compete? I, I don't think so, no. Yeah. I don't think so. I've talked to so many artists and music people and tech people who tell me that NFTs uh-huh. and the blockchain is going to revolutionize this industry and we're going to stop streaming and we're going to pay for NFT tracks or whatever it is and it's going to it's going to end your business. Mm-hmm. Do you spend your time thinking about NFTs? I don't stay up at night worrying about NFTs. I don't think it's going to end the business. I think there's a lot to be seen. I think there's a potentially large opportunity and for sure to allow artists to engage more directly with fans. I think when I talked earlier about how we see the future and artists and fans really connecting much more and there's a lot more revenue to get from fans that way, that's where I see an opportunity for NFTs. Would you retail NFTs in the app? Would I? Yeah. Um, We would consider it. I don't think it's ready for mainstream anywhere close to it at this point. So it's not something you should expect to see from us in the near term. But um, yeah, we're looking at NFTs. We're looking at all kinds of ways for artists to build new revenue lines by connecting with their fans. And again, we, we view our position as pretty strong there coming as, as Amazon, as a retailer, as someone customers trust to spend money. And when you talk to the artist, that's actually what they're looking for from us. They've been asking us since as long as I've been in the business, like, hey, could you help me with X, Y, or Z? And X, Y, or Z almost always involves, how do I become more than just an artist? How do I build other business lines? And you're the biggest online retailer in the world, can you help me? And that's now that we have this big base of a music service and we understand who are the fans of this artist and that artist, that gives us an incredible opportunity to expand those artist businesses over time. Do you worry that actually just making hit songs isn't enough to be a business anymore? This is the thing I worry about the most, right? Like when I was a kid with vinyl and then CDs, you were just an artist. You could just sell a lot of vinyl. You could just sell a lot of CDs. You could get a lot of radio plays and you'd be rich. Well, they still made a lot of money on touring. Well, they made a lot of, but it was all music, right? You had a hit song and the hit song generated a lot of revenue for you a lot of ways. Now it's like you have a hit song and what you need to do is sell perfume. Like there's a, there's an immediate turn to merchandising that occurs. Yeah. I think, I think you need to look way more deeply into artist cohorts and figure out there are plenty of artists who are making a ton of money on streaming. Let's be honest about it. Those are the same artists who would have made a ton of money selling CDs and vinyl. There are more artists than there have ever been before by an order of magnitude or more. And a lot of those artists 
aren't having hit singles. And so if you just have one hit single, I think even in the old days, the one hit wonders, I don't know whether those artists were wealthy for life. I think maybe streaming amplifies sort of the most popular stuff is even more popular. But I think that's also just part of globalization of culture as a whole. The stuff that's big tends to get bigger. The stuff that's niche does struggle. And I think my guess is those artists historically most of them needed to find other revenue sources beyond just selling vinyl and CDs. I like our ability to help them do that. Would I like them to see more money off of streaming? Absolutely. And I think over time, you'll see it happen. Apple just raised its rates. Are you going to raise your rates? Uh, if we do decide to raise the rates, I will announce that to all my customers at the same time, <laughs> as opposed to on a podcast. I don't know they're all listening yeah. right now. We but, can make uh, that happen. We, we have it. We put have it in the front page of the Amazon app. Let's, let's go. <laughs> We have actually, so we actually have raised price on a couple of our plans uh, in this calendar year in 2022. Yes, Apple just raised prices, uh, something we're always looking at what's the right va- the price point for our customers. If and when we have something to announce, we'll make sure you hear about it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I want to end by talking about something that I know is very important to you, uh, Music Cares. We've talked a lot about artists and how artists make money and how to grow the market. It was a rough couple of years in the music industry because touring shut down. That whole revenue stream went to nothing for yep. so many artists. Yep. Not just for artists. Important to point out. Everyone right. involved Everyone involved in live music. Um, I bought a lot of merch from my favorite venue in the world, which is the Metro in Chicago. Just, to, just as many just t-shirts as I could buy. Yeah. Just because it, it's awesome. I didn't even live there. I haven't been to a show there in years. But, you know, I saw the Instagram post. I bought a t-shirt whenever I could. Yeah. Um, they're back. I think the Smashing Pumpkins just played the Metro. It's pretty good. Uh, Sounds like the band that would play them on the way back. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. You're the chairman of Music Hairs, which is a music aid organization. Yep. Tell us about that work and tell us what the last two years have been like for you. Okay. So Music Hairs is the foundation. It's affiliated with the Recording Academy, the people that put on the Grammys. And it's been around for 30 years and it's really the largest music charity in the business. Our goal is to help people in the music industry who need help. It's We kind of think of it as the people behind the music. Obviously, we're not talking about Beyonce doesn't need our help. She's doing just fine. But like you said, when COVID happened and the industry just stopped, there are a lot of people immediately out of work. So historically, Music Cares, we do things like financial assistance, medical assistance, hearing clinics at uh, festivals, a lot of addiction recovery. Unfortunately, addiction continues to be a problem in, in almost any media business, but definitely in music. When COVID hit, we recognized the unprecedented nature of this. And I sat with the chairman of the academy, Harvey Mason Jr., who's now the CEO of the academy. And we're like, we got to do something. You know, it's going to be a while before the government kicks in. And we're all just in shell shock. So actually, I think within two or three days of it being declared a global pandemic, we sat down and we created what was called the Music Cares COVID-19 Relief Fund. And we then went out and raised money from the tech companies like Amazon, but almost all of the companies in the industry participated, some very, very generously, but everyone was there. And that was important that we all get in there together. Record labels, artists, some very successful artists contributed. I don't have the exact figures, but let's call it roughly in the range of about $30 million raised and distributed as financial assistance. And we have a very good vetting process because we've been doing this for years to the point where other charities in the music business were coming to us and said, hey, could we funnel the contributions we're getting through you guys because you have a really good vetting process, vetting to see, is this person really in the music industry? Have they been in it? You know, they had to been in the music industry as their kind of primary source of revenue for the last two years. And we were cutting checks to people within, I think, a few weeks of it being called a global pandemic. And, you know, I, I can't tell you the number of testimonials I've seen about, like, you saved me, I was going to get kicked out of my house or whatever it was. It's an incredibly meaningful organization. I've been chairman for about three years. I've been on the board for about five. And um, it's just an amazing organization and continues to grow. And to give it context, that $30 million around COVID relief was probably about four or five times what we normally do in a typical year of money raised and distributed to people in the music industry. So it was was very intense. I think for the first two weeks of the pandemic, I felt like uh, I think I spent more time, definitely more time on music cares than on Amazon business. It was like nonstop all day, every day, you know, trying to raise money and talk to people. And and so same with Harvey Mason. And it was just awesome. Yeah. You know, the outputs were awesome. How does that work when you have two jobs like that? I mean, I'm sure, hey, I've, I'm just going to go do music cares. Like we're going to make sure that the venue owners and their employees are stable. Yeah. I'm guessing everyone understood. But how does that work when you have two jobs? 
it, usually it's fairly easy to balance. I, you know, I, I have a time commitment with Music Cares, and I scheduled into my day. And and you know, I personally and Amazon as a whole view that as a, as a really important part of the music industry, and it's a great thing that I, I'm involved. And as an organization, we're also not just m me personally, but we donate a lot of money to Music Cares as an organization, and, and we have a lot of people involved in it. Um, you know, I've got a great team, and so for those first few weeks, <laughs> we were in, it was crisis mode. As for everybody in, around yeah. the world, it was crisis mode, and the other leaders on my team stepped up. They knew I wasn't really, I, I you know, yeah. I was on the calls with them. We were talking about COVID stuff, but on business stuff, I just kind of let them go take care of things because I had to focus on this. Live music is one of those post-pandemic signals. Yeah, like I have been to more shows recently. Yes, same here. Do you think? Do you think it's back? It feels back. I haven't seen the data, but it certainly feels like it's back. I mean, I, every show I've been to has been sold out. Every merch line is snaking around. Impossible to get merch. One of the reasons Amazon's interested in the merch business. <laughs> it's a pretty, it's a pretty uh, under-innovated space, let's just say. But um, it does feel back to me. I was at a show here last night in New York, and it was full. It was yeah. full, and everyone was having a great time and dancing around. And, and the artist made the comment about how wonderful it was to be in person after two years. And you could tell the connection was stronger than ever between the artists and the and the fans. It was great. What's the path for Music Cares now that it's back? Well, the need for Music Cares, it was amplified during the pandemic, but it's always been there. And I think for us, it's it's about growing Music Cares. And it's, it's well known in the music industry, but not even well enough known in the music industry. It's sort of the, I want to call it the best kept secret because it's not a secret, but there's still a lot of people don't know about it. I think for Music Cares, it's making sure this next generation of artists really knows about Music Cares and expanding the types of services we provide. A lot of focus going forward on mental health because we're seeing that as a growing problem among artists, particularly around younger generation of artists, if I'm really honest. And so it's it's an area that we're expanding into. All right, Steve, thank you so much for coming to Dakota. This was a great conversation. Thanks, Neil. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Steve Boom for taking the time to talk today, and thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter, although I'm not sure how much longer. If you really like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. And for a limited time only, if you tweet about Decoder, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Kelly Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters. And our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.